right. Well, it's, um, as always, it's so good to be the church, and uh, I want to thank you for bringing it into this room. Uh, can we, uh, we did this as we came in, but can you just look to someone, and you don't have to touch them, you don't have to hug them, you don't have to kiss them or anything like that, uh, but can you look at them and just say, I'm so thankful that you're here. Um, it's good to see you. Thanks for being the church. Thank you for being my friend. Uh, thanks for worshiping together. All right. We are in uh, right smack in the middle of a series that, um, in, in talking to some of our people, I, I think that um, it's been a really helpful series for a lot of us as we talk about emotionally healthy spirituality. Um, but the common refrain is, if, if people are saying it's good, it is almost always followed up by, um, but, it's, but it's been really hard also. Um, I know it, it has been for, for me as I kind of explore a lot of these things, and I'm seeking emotionally health, emotional health in, in my own spirituality um, as I kind of prepare and pray through these things. Um, it's, been, it's been probing in my soul, and it's been really a, a, a spotlight into my heart um, as I seek to be uh, someone who loves God with all my heart, my, my soul, my mind, and all of my strength, and to love my neighbor as much as I love myself, and, and that's a challenge. Um, but that's what Jesus said is in what an emotionally healthy spiritual person looks like. Someone who loves God, not with the 10% above the surface, but with all the totality of our being, the 90% that people don't see, that all of us loves God. That's what emotionally healthy spirituality looks like. And on the flip side of that, we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. That's what Jesus is calling us to be and how he's calling us to live. And, and what we saw is that last week, God was showing us that the way for us to reach the beneath the surface parts to love him is he'll bring us to these walls in life, like these periods of crisis, uh, these hardships, these challenges, places where we feel like we can't go any further. And it's in those places that God really refines and purifies a love for him so that we're weaned from um, a, a love for idols. We're weaned from the emotions and the feelings that we think often must accompany love for God. Uh, and he purifies those things in us so that we can love him uh, from the depth of our being, the way that he wants to be loved. Uh, but today, how is it then that we are to love our neighbor as if we were loving ourselves when we love them? Like, that's a hard thing to do. I, to, to me, uh, when I think of what it means to love our neighbor, Jesus, the example he gave was, was of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, but in the Pauline letters, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives an example, he, or he gives like a, a, a checklist, if you will, of what it means to love someone, uh, just what it means to love someone in general. He says, uh, love is patient. Right? Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not rude, and on and on and on it goes because love never fails, right? Faith, hope, and love, but out of these three things, um, love never fails. And if you've ever heard <clears throat> someone preach on 1 Corinthians 13, you'll probably hear them say, okay, so how are you doing at this thing called love? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take out the word love, and you're going to replace it with your name. And so here we go. Mike is patient. Mike is kind. Mike does not envy. He is not rude. He does not boast. And then you put your name in there, and you say, and then they say, how are you doing when it comes to love? And so I would look at this, 1 Corinthians 13, and I would read that, and I would put my name in there. David is patient. David is kind. David does not envy. He does not boast. He is not rude. And at the end of it all, I'd be like, dude, <laughs> this is all wrong. 
wrong. This is like everything is wrong. David is not patient. I am not kind. I do envy. I do boast. I am proud. I am rude. I fail when it comes to love. That's me as I read 1 Corinthians. And I realize, man, uh, this thing called love, loving your neighbor as yourself is really, really, really hard. Anyone feel me in this? Like, I stink at this thing called love. Like, I try. I really do. But I can't get past my kids because they're cute. Or I can't get past my spouse. Or I can't get past my parents because that's, like, natural. But to love other people, that's learned behavior. And I just can't do that. I don't know if you're tracking with me. But today, I've got, I've got some good news. I'm going to tell you how God allows us to get beneath the surface in order for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is good stuff. <clears throat> so by the end of our time today, you're going to know <laughs> how you can love other people the way that Jesus says, hey, if you do it this way, then you win. You win. You get first place. You've done the great commandment. But I will give a caveat. <clears throat> it's kind of simple, but the pathway is not very easy. Theoretically, it makes sense, but practically, it may be quite difficult. But if you're willing to go on that journey, then God's going to meet us and he's going to change us. If you really want this in your heart and you want this in your life. So let's look to the book of Job, J-O-B, Job chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to read verses 13 through 22. We're going to read the book of Job. It comes right after the book of Esther. It comes right before Psalms and Proverbs. So a little bit before the halfway point of your Bible. Do Job chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then 13 through 22. Um, the, the true story of Job is pretty familiar uh, to those who've grown up in the church, but even to those who haven't, when you think of an innocent sufferer or someone who had a really hard day or a really hard life, a lot of people will look at this person, Job. And I'm going to read and give you a little bit of a, of a character background, and then we'll look into this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that he has this one day in his life. This is Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, jump down to verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, oh, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Now, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. 
They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they're dead, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is God's word. So we're going to look at a really, 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 really hard day in the life of a really, 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 really good man. They called him the greatest man in the ancient Near East. What does he tell us about how we love people? What does he tell us about love and loss and grief and pain? Uh, three thoughts today. Here's the first thing. Okay, here's the first thing. Loss is a normal part of life, but we want to treat it as abnormal. Okay. This is huge. Loss is a normal part of life, but we want to treat it as abnormal. Anytime you see something that is abnormal in a place where you expect things to be normal, what do you do with that which is abnormal? If you ask the waiter for a bowl of soup and you get a bowl of soup and in that bowl of soup is everything that ought to be there but then there's something that ought not be in there. There is a piece of hair or there's a fly or there's a cockroach in there. That's not normal. You say, can you remove this from me? This is very simple. If you're looking at your face in the mirror and in uh, a normal nose, it's clean, but you've got stuff hanging out of it. That's abnormal. You say, I need to remove that from my nose. This is pretty simple. There are normal things, but when something is abnormal, you want to remove those things. Here's what we see about loss in life. Loss is a normal part of life. That's normal. It's the way it, ought to, the way, well, the way it is in this fallen world, but we often treat it as abnormal. And so what do we do? We consider this alien invasion into our lives, and so we want to do away with it. We want to get rid of it. We want to do something with it. What Job is showing us here is that loss is a normal part of life. Who is Job? Well, it says a few things about him. One, he's blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he shunned evil. I don't know who you consider. I think in, in our day, um, we're not living in a, in, in a kind of time where people like this are, are, are famous, are, are, are well-known anymore. It used to be we could say Billy Graham, and everybody would know. So I asked Olivia, I said, who is someone like this who's upright, blameless? Um, and she said, I don't know, maybe Keanu Reeves? <laughs> so maybe you think of Keanu, but he's a godly, a Christian Keanu Reeves, right? He's blameless, he's upright, he shuns evil. He's like Keanu Reeves, he's like a cool guy. But not only that, he had seven sons and three daughters, so he's a family man, he loved his family. Uh, he's like uh, Jack from This Is Us. He's like Phil Dunphy from Modern Family. He's like, uh, you, you name it, your favorite, your favorite TV show dad. That's Job. He loves his kids. He loves his family. He tries to teach them what's right. And it says he owned all kinds of animals. He's rich. He's got yachts. He's got private jets. He's got helicopters. He's got cars. He's got multiple cars in his garage. He's the greatest man in the ancient Near East. He's Jeff Bezos. He's Bill Gates. He's Elon Musk. He's got all of these things, and everybody knows about him. If you were to go shopping at your local Publix or your local Walmart in the ancient Near East, and you're waiting to check out, and you look at the magazines, In Touch magazine, Star, Time, People, Forbes, whatever it is, 
Job would be on the cover. This is who he is. Like, Job is the man, and everybody knew who he was. He's a good man. He's a great man. He's a rich man. Everything is going well in his life until this day. When in one day, okay, in one day, he loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his property. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. A few chapters later, it sees, we see that his marriage breaks down. Mrs. Job can't handle it, and she gets really upset. She said, enough is enough. Uh, why don't you curse God? Everything falls apart for Job in one day. And here's what Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that great uh, revival preacher, he said in preaching about Job, he said, what happened to Job in one day is a picture of what happens in all of our lives over the totality of our years. In other words, if you were to take your life, okay, your life, your 38 years of life, your 50 years of life, your 12 years of life, and you were to put it in a time-lapse video, it would be the life of Job. Right? You will lose people in your life. You will lose property. You will lose investments. You will lose money. You will lose things that you, that you cherish. There will be heartache. There will be brokenness. There will be pain. There will be loss. There will be heartache because loss is a normal part of life in this fallen world. Some of you might be thinking, well, my life is not really like that, right? My life isn't like that. I'm 30 years old or 50 years old or 12 years old, whatever years old I am, uh, and I haven't suffered anything like that. I haven't suffered any kind of catastrophic loss, but you all know, you all know even as children, you know as children the kind of loss that you deal with when other people might look at it and say, that's not a big deal, but to you it is a big deal. You know what this is like, right? When... when <clears throat> our, our littlest one, actually all three of our kids once had fish, like they had um, beta fish, uh, and they had different names. Elise had one when she was three, and Elijah when he was five, and Manny when she was like eight years old. They each had a fish. Um, Elise called hers Eliana Sophia. That was her little fish's name. She gave it a name, but she didn't feed it. She didn't take care of it. She didn't clean its water. She didn't do anything, and so um, that little fish died. She didn't care about it. She was like, oh, where's my fish? And Elise, go feed your fish. I don't want to feed my fish. You feed it. So other people would feed it. Manny would feed it. Olivia would feed it. I would feed it. But she didn't care anything about it. But when that fish died, as soon as that fish died, she started caring about it. <laughs> She's like, walk around like, where's my fishy? I want another fishy. Where did my fish go? We're like, it died. It died because you didn't take care of it. And all of a sudden, you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. We're like, dude, it's no big deal. It's just a little silly little betta fish. But to her, she was like, well, I lost it. This is sad. As children, we know, like we know, people might think, oh, you, say, you hear this, and we say this all the time. It's just puppy love. It's just puppy love. But you understand that to puppies, what it really is is love. You might say they don't know anything. They're just young. But to them, it's love, and it hurts, and the loss is real. I remember during one of our confirmation classes before uh, a young, <clears throat> a teenager named Hong <clears throat> he had his daughter baptized recently, uh, but when he was 16 and he was confirming his faith in front of the congregation, we had this class, and each of the students was sharing their testimonies. And Hong, as he was sharing his testimony, you know, a lot of these testimonies are just kind of like, I grew up in church, and yada, 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 and then now I want to give my life to Christ. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's really kind of, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a typical story, but um, a lot of the story arc is, is, is pretty similar. But when Hong was sharing, he stopped for a little bit, and, and he just started crying. And I wondered why he was crying. And he talked about when he was a kid, 
the church that he was attending um, split. And when the church split, he said he showed up to church one day and half of his friends were gone. And he asked his parents why, and they said, oh, these, these kids are not coming to our church anymore. Their parents are not coming to our church anymore. And as an elementary school kid, he was remembering the loss and the pain that he felt. It wasn't the loss of a grandparent who raised him or the loss of a parent, but the loss of his friends and his, his relationships because of the fact that parental infighting within the church caused him to lose half of the people that he grew up calling his friends. Right? Even as young people, we know the pain of loss. It doesn't have to be this great, tragic, catastrophic loss that, oh, it's nothing compared to those people's lives. Hey, but loss is loss, and it's a normal part of life, and part of loss means it comes with pain. That's the reality of life in this broken and in this fallen world. As we are young, you know the kind of loss, whether it's, hey, I like this girl, she likes me back, she even told me that, and then the next week she says, I don't like you anymore, I like Jeff, or I like Johnny, or I like Jackson, or somebody else, and you know that sense of loss that you feel. It's the kind of loss where maybe you were, when you were a kid, you lost a parent, or when you moved to a different home, you lost your set of friends, and everything is different, and there's that loss, and mom and dad said, well, it's the will of God that we're moving, but it doesn't change the fact that there's pain in your heart because you lost a little bit of what you knew to be familiar, and in that loss, there was a sense of pain. You know what loss looks like, and as we get older, it begins to evolve, and it begins to look different, and that's the kind of loss that you might identify yourselves with. It's the loss of my, my parent. It's the loss of the grandparent. It's the loss of a job in the worst possible time. It's the loss of an investment. It's the loss of a relationship. It's when my parents got divorced. It's when I'm going through a divorce. There's that loss. It's the loss of, of, of knowing that this dream of whatever you're thinking of is not going to be able to, to happen. It's, it's, it's when you find out that your child is going to be born uh, with a disease. It's that sense of loss that we face as we get older. Sometimes it's innocent. Sometimes it's not. But loss is loss, and you cannot minimize it because it looks, my loss is not as big as their loss doesn't matter. You're not comparing yourselves to other people. Loss is loss as long as you feel like that's loss. Uh, as I get older, uh, earlier today, in our, before worship service started, someone said, hey, can you still dunk basketball? And I said, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. He said, but you can touch the rim, right? I was like, no, I can't even do that now. I think I would bust a kneecap if I tried to do that. What I'm realizing these days, maybe the last couple years more than any other, it just makes sense. I'm realizing and grieving the loss of my youth. I'm not the young person that I once was. Uh, I'm okay with it, I think, but whenever I look at my beard, my pride and joy, I see the graying hairs in it, I see the white hairs in it, and I realize you're not the young man that you used to be. Nowadays, it's hard for me to bend down to pick things up, so if I drop something, I need to either, I, Manny, Elijah, come here, can you pick this up for me? Or if no one's around, or if I have to get it myself and people are around, I'll go down to pick it up and I'll ask, hey, does anyone need anything while I'm down here? Because it doesn't, I don't go down here that often. I realize that a lot of things in life are changing. As my hair begins to fall out and thin, I had to change because someone told me, hey, you know what? You're losing hair. You need to use, you can't use that kind of shampoo 
shampoo anymore. You need to use different shampoo. Here, I've got a present for you. And they bought me this shampoo. <laughs> this is so funny. It's actually painful. <laughs> but it's this shampoo called Bosley. Has anyone heard of Bosley shampoo? You have. David John, who has no hair. See, it makes sense. <laughs> Bosley revitalizing shampoo for thinning hair. Like this is, they gave this to me and said, hey, you could really use this. Um, it's got peptides in it to strengthen your hair. It's got soy amino acids for thicker, fuller kind of hair, biotin, all kinds of things. Because every time I wash my hair, I'm reminded <laughs> that I'm losing my youth. I'm no longer the person that I used to be. And for some people, this is really hard. I don't think I went through a midlife crisis or anything, but some people do. This is a hard thing. They realize, man, half of my life is over. They look back at, the, at their lives and they're like, wow, what have I accomplished in life? And they regret the loss of their youth. I don't know what it is that you feel like you're losing these days. Maybe you feel like you're losing your sanity. <laughs> you feel like you're losing your relationships. You feel like you're losing your hopes and your dreams and your wishes. I don't know what you're feeling like you're losing, but... Here's what we do with that. If we don't understand that this is a normal part of life, if we begin to think that this is an abnormal thing, an invasion into life from another planet that ought not be there, then we're going to do whatever we can to get rid of the pain that accompanies the loss that we face in life. And so what do we do? As, as children, I know exactly what I did. When I, when, so when I was a kid, uh, first pet I had, First pet I had was a hamster. All of my friends said, ooh, you got a gerbil. I was like, no, it's not a gerbil. It's a hamster, right? It's a hamster. And when that hamster died, we got another one. That died, we got another one. That died, we got a rabbit. So we got a rabbit, and we stuck him in our hamster cage, but that hamster cage was so tiny for it that basically all the rabbit could do was turn around. That's all he could do. And so we built him this big wooden cage, um, this wooden cage that was elevated, but, uh, and had this like little latch on it to lock it, but this guy was smart, and if he pushed hard enough, he realized that he could get out. And so a lot of times, the rabbit would get out. This little fluffy white rabbit would get out. We'd go in the morning to feed it because we kept it in the garage. Go out to feed it, and we're like, oh, my gosh, the rabbit is gone. And we're like, where is it? We'd find it in the garage, and oh, we'd put it back in there. Dumb rabbit, you're always getting out. Silly rabbit. Tricks are for kids. And then we'd put him back in, and then the rabbit would come out, bounce out. And then sometimes the garage door would be open. The rabbit would come out, and we're like, oh, my gosh, where did it go? I remember one time we had some friends over, and, and like way across the way in the grass, some guy, Mr. Mr. Song was his name. He's like, oh, there it is. Go get it. So we were like running after the rabbit. We got it, put it back in. But sometimes the rabbit would run away, and we wouldn't be able to find him. And so what would I do? I would cry. And say, oh my gosh, my rabbit, the rabbit is gone, the rabbit is gone. And my parents would say, stop crying. And then they said, we'll find that rabbit. Right? What they were really saying was, at the rabbit store, at the pet store, there are like many white rabbits that are exactly the same. And so if they couldn't find it, then they would say, okay, let's go to the bunny store. Let's go to the pet store. Go to the pet store, buy another white rabbit. I was like, ah, oh, you know, but his, the, this, the, the one we had, its uh, ear was pink. This one's not. Oh, don't worry about it. Just pretend. And so we pretend that that rabbit never left, that he never died. I never lost that thing. Hey, there he is. Wake the next morning. It's the same rabbit. That rabbit, <laughs> that one rabbit, okay, that one rabbit, my parents would have me believe, that one rabbit lived for eight years <laughs> because there are five different versions of that same rabbit. Why? Because they're trying to teach us not to, hey, they're trying to protect us from the reality of loss in life. 
as kids, maybe that's helpful. But here's the broken part of our lives is as we get older, we still build these defense mechanisms into us to keep us from feeling the pain of loss. So what do we do? We say things like, we, we, we deny the pain. Hey, your mom died. I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's okay. She's in a better place. And then we skip over the pain of loss. Or, yeah, we were never really that close anyways. It's not that big a deal. Or, yeah, she lived a good life. She's happy now, and that's all that matters. I'm fine. Or, she would not want me to be sad, so I'm not going to be sad. I'm just, it's okay. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for worrying about me, but I'm going to be okay. We deny the reality of the pain of loss in our lives. We minimize it. That's okay. It's okay. When that person did that to me and they stole my innocence and they stole my purity, it's okay. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad. When my parents got divorced, I know it affects some people, but to me, it wasn't that bad. I was a teenager. It's all right. I think, you know, we learned to deal with it. I had to grow up fast. It was a good thing. And we minimize that sense of loss. Here, see, different cultures deal with loss in, in different ways, but here in America, what we're really good at doing is we're good at burying it and covering it up and, 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 and pretending like it's not there. And one of the best ways we do this is through addictions. We're probably one of the most addicted countries in the world, us and probably South Korea, when it comes to our addiction to, to games, our addiction to esports, our addiction to alcohol, our addiction to, to, to sex, our addiction to uh, Netflix, our addiction to Korean dramas, whatever it is, to kind of take our minds off of that, right? I don't feel those things. It's not, there's no pain in it. And we bury the sense of loss and the pain of loss with something else. Because even though it's a normal part of life, we want to pretend like, and we want to act like, and we want to treat it as if it was an abnormal part of life. That's sad. We don't need to deal with that because it's just a foreign invasion into our lives. Can I ask you, how do you deal with the loss in your life? How have you dealt with the loss in your life, the loss of that relationship, the loss of that person that you never got to say goodbye to, the loss of that job? the loss of that hope, the loss of that dream, the loss of that aspect of your life when you had to move, whatever it was, how have you dealt with that sense of loss and the accompanying pain, the loss of your ideal picture of what your family ought to look like when you realize, you know what, man, that godly parent, the more I learn, the less I see the, reality, the more I see reality, the less that ideal picture, uh, the more that ideal picture begins to fall away. And I realize, man, all of these things, I'm losing the ideal image of what life ought to have looked like. How do you deal with the loss in your life? The first thing is understanding that it's normal. Uh, we shouldn't treat it as abnormal. The second thing that we see, okay, second thing that we see is that grieving, okay, grieving is God's prescription and an for loss and an invitation to encounter him. Okay. What does God call us to do? In other words, in the midst of the pain of loss, what is he calling us to do? Grieving is God's prescription, not burying it, not throwing ourselves into addiction, not denying it, not pushing it aside, not covering it up, but grieving, 
is what calls, God calls us to do. And not only does he call us to do it, but it's an invitation for us to encounter him in that place of grief. Jesus said it in one of his 10 Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. He said, when you mourn, I will meet you in that place. Because you see, lamenting isn't simply a period of venting. It's not. It's an invitation to encounter God in those places. Can I ask you, how have you grieved? Have you grieved honestly the losses in your life? What does that even mean? What does that even look like? Again, different people do, and, and, and this can be a cultural thing. Some Asian people, they just drown it away in drinking. Some cultures in, in, uh, in Greece, if you're a widow in, 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 in Greek culture, in Greece these days, I think, um, I, I don't know if this is still to this, uh, to this day it happens, but if you're a widow, your husband dies, uh, they used to wear black for the rest of their lives as a way of saying, okay, this is my lot in life. I Italians would say when, uh, if they're at a funeral, they would weep and they would wail and they would scream the person's name. They would bang on the casket and as it's being lowered into the ground, oftentimes they would jump into it as a way of, 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 of trying to hold on to that person as long as they can. How do you, how have you, and have you dealt with the grief in life? Because cultures deal with it in different ways, but... Our mission and our call is to deal with it in a biblical way, right? Cultures can have aspects of it that are appropriate to what we ought to do in the midst and the face of loss, but the call of God is that we grieve in a way that is biblical and that we do this in a way <coughs> that he calls us to, in the way that he prescribes for us to do. So what does that look like? Right, what does that look like in our lives as we seek to grieve. See, Jesus shows us, okay, Jesus shows us what his call is. Okay, in the, in the midst of loss, okay, in the midst of pain of loss, as Lazarus was dead, John chapter 11, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say, hey guys, guys, hey, um, everything's going to be okay. Okay, everything's going to be okay, right? Just wait a couple seconds, wait a couple minutes, wait a few, wait a few hours and watch what I do. Lazarus, come out of the grave. He doesn't do that. He knows what's going to happen, and yet in the midst of that brokenness and pain, he weeps with them. He brings tears with them. He grieves their loss with them. When Jesus is about to go to the cross, when he's on the cross, Jesus doesn't look out and say, hey, you know what? It's going to be okay. Every mess is meant for a message. He doesn't spiritualize it. He doesn't explain it away and say, you know what, this is a test. It's going to lead to a testimony. He doesn't say things like that. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He grieves the loss of the hand and the face of the Father in the midst of the, even though he knows that on the third day he's going to be raised again, but he grieves the loss because he's showing us that this is what we need to do in the midst of the painful situations of our lives. How have you dealt with the loss in your life. How does Job deal with it? Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. He's saying, you know what? This pain is so great, it would have been better for me not to have even been born. And then and jump down to chapter 3, verse 11. He said, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? He said, it is better for me to be dead. 
It's better for, that's the depth of the grieving that he was going through. Then turn to chapter 6. If you look at chapter 6, it's what it says in, in, in verses 2 through 4. He says, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. This is not a man who's glossing over his pain here. This is not a person who's spiritualizing away his loss and weakness. He's not the person who's going to his prayer partner and saying, hey, guys, uh, I know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm just going through a hard day, but it's going to be fine. He doesn't. What does it mean to grieve? It means that you come and you tell God what's in your heart, not what you think ought to be in your heart, not what people tell you you ought to be feeling in your heart, but you bring to him what's in your heart. What is the loss that you're facing? Right? We have to name that. We have to call it what it is. God, I'm grieving the loss of my reputation. God, I'm grieving the loss of my brother when he died. I'm grieving the loss of my hopes and dreams of having this perfect life. God, I'm grieving the loss of the American dream. I'm grieving the loss of whatever it is that you grieve, that we bring that before God honestly. Because a lot of times what we do is we, even we get into prayer meetings and we start praying. One of the things that I have to fight in my own heart is, God, I don't want to pray what I think you want me to pray. I don't want to pray what I think I ought to say. I don't want to pray what I've been taught to pray all the time. I want to pray what's in my heart because that's how I can actually encounter you, right? If you want to meet someone, if you want to encounter somebody, you can't encounter them while you're wearing a mask. You don't know who they are. You have to take that mask off. You have to be real because it's in reality being fully known that you could actually be fully loved, right? That's the Garden of Eden. They were naked, they were unashamed, and they could have the relationship that they had. But as soon as they sinned, they covered themselves up because they thought, if I'm fully naked, I cannot be fully loved. But in order to be loved, I have to cover up my nakedness. That's what we think in this broken world. But God says, that's not what it is. I want you to come as you are. Naked I come from my mother's womb. Naked I'll depart from this life. It's not only physically the reality, but it's the spiritual, emotional reality that he's calling himself to come before God with, come without pretense, without a mask, say, God, this is who I am. I'm hurting. I'm grieving the loss of everything that I knew, everything that I held. God, it's gone. Where are you in the midst of this place? Because unless we grieve, we will carry a, around a baggage, a weight a heaviness that deadens our soul, that deadens our emotions, and that eventually will begin to spew out of our lives to those who are closest to us. Here's what it looks like. It looks like passive aggressiveness. You've got this pain inside of you, but you're not going to bring it out because a lot of times you don't even know how to access that. And so you become passive aggressive to other people. You give them the silent treatment because that's your way of dealing with the pain. And you isolate that part of your heart, kind of like a computer partition. You partition that part of your heart, and you try to live from this part of your life. But you never touch this aspect of it. You, you, you speak out with sarcasm all the time. Everything is biting humor because it betrays an undealt with sense of grief and pain within your heart. Eventually, you begin to spew sideways nuclear waste like Chernobyl. You don't blow up like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but you begin to spew out this way, and it begins to affect your relationships around you. And the longer you go with pain in your heart without dealing with it, man, you ask people around you. They'll tell you. People who are honest with you, they'll, they'll tell you the truth. 
Yeah, you know what? You're hard to be with. You're hard to live with because we haven't dealt with the pain of loss. We haven't grieved over our loss because for whatever reasons, we feel like we don't need to, we don't want to. I've got Jesus in my heart, but you've still got grief and loss within our lives as well. Here's Job. He says, I'm going to tell you what I've lost. I'm going to tell you what I feel. I'm going to tell you what's in my heart. And in that place, not only does he lament in order to vent, but there God encounters him. See, God meets us in those places of grieving. But what Job does that we need to understand also is that he didn't do it alone throughout. And, and, and he does this for 35 chapters. We have to, if we engage in this, we have to be willing to, to work through this for the long haul. Because a lot of times grief and the process of grieving is going to take a lot longer than we want it to take. The, the, the second time I, I went in to see a therapist after, after having suffered some loss, I went in and, and I just said, listen, Brad, here's, here's what I want. I just, want to, I just want to deal with this, get over with it so I can get on with life. I just want to get on with life. I've got, I've got a family to take care of. I've got a church to shepherd. I've got all these things I need to do. I, I, don't want to, I just want to deal with, get it over with and just move on. And he, he stopped me and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Loss is not something that you get over so that it's in your rearview mirror. He says it shapes your soul. This loss is part of who you are. You're never going to get over it. You're going to carry this with you. This is who you are. But out of it, you'll be able to offer a fuller self to those that you've been called into relationship with. Yeah, it's difficult. Again, it's surgical. But this is how God grows us and meets with us in these places. That's why Job doesn't do it alone. He meets with three of his friends. And his friends are not good in this situation. They're well-intentioned, well-meaning, but they don't speak the truth to him. They try to. But we need people like this in our lives as we go through grief and mourning. Because a lot of times, people will be great for the first week after your loss. Once the funeral is done... And people begin to scatter. That's when it really begins to hit. When you first break up with that person, people will be there for you. But after a week, that's when it really begins to hit you. After a while, when the, the phone calls stop coming, the texts stop coming, when people begin to forget, when they begin to move on, that's where you need your people the most because the journey to healing isn't an overnight thing. But are you willing to engage with that place and to, and to wrestle in the midst of the mystery of not knowing what God's doing. Because when we do, the gift on the outside, on the flip side of that, is that you'll learn to let go of control over your life. Some of you who are so controlling, there's different reasons for it. Probably, you know, at some point in your life, uh, you felt like you're out of control, so you need to control life. Maybe you felt like, a lot of times what happens is, in the midst of grief, uh, in the midst of loss, we don't grieve our losses. And it's difficult for us to surrender control to a God we don't see. We can't understand his workings. But one of the gifts of grieving is that we learn to let go of control. There's a deep sense of humility. There's a sense of, of, of grounding where you're not running flighty from here to there, but there's a sense of, uh, the, the ancients call it gravitas, a sense of weightiness to your life. You don't just talk because you've learned it in a book, you talk because you've learned it through experience of grieving. 
And then as you do and as you meet with God and as you meet with people and as you're honest, here's what Job does in Job 19, verse 25. You don't have to turn there, but he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In the midst of that grief, he doesn't get stuck in that place, but he says, I'm looking to the good that's going to come out of this. I'm going to see God in the midst of this place, and he's going to do something in me. He's going to do something powerful in me. Because the way of God is there's always a resurrection as you walk through death. And the only way to resurrection is going through the crucifixion. Only as you grieve can you come out on the other side and experience life. Only when a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies will it produce many seeds. If it remains one, it doesn't produce anything. But there's a work that God is doing in the midst of grief if you're willing to go to those places. Have you grieved honestly the losses in your life? Because if you do, here's the last thing that we see. Okay, grieving enlarges your soul so that you can love others as yourself. Okay, grieving enlarges your soul so that you can love others as yourself. Some, I think it was William Sitz, uh, Sitzer, a grief observed, or not a grief observed, something, I forget the name of the book, but he basically, uh, similar to Job, in one day he lost his mother, his wife, and a couple of his kids, a uh, drunk driving accident, and it was, it was terrible. Uh, but as he went through the, this period of grieving, what he said was, um, our souls are like a balloon, like, like a balloon, and grief is God's way of blowing that balloon to enlarge our souls so that we can enter into the suffering of other people. Do you know people who are, who are compassionate, like who really mourn with those who mourn? The ones who do it well, I would almost guarantee that they're people who've been through that period of grieving the losses in their lives and have their souls breathed into by God to enlarge that so that they could enter into that space with other people. Can I, can I tell you, if you're not dating yet, to be careful of people who go from relationship to relationship without having grieved one lost relationship before going into another one. Because when we don't grieve our losses, our souls begin to shrivel. And part of the reason why we go from relationship to relationship is because there is not space within our souls to enter into the suffering of other people when they need us the most. And because of that, they say, you're selfish, you only think about yourself, and it causes constant patterns of relational difficulty because the soul has not been enlarged. When I first started seeing a counselor, um, I went in saying, hey, I'm 27 years old, I'm innocent, I haven't experienced loss, I've got my parents, I've got grandparents, two of them died, but they died when I was young, I didn't know them, one of them died in the Korean War, never knew him, I said, my life is fine, I haven't experienced pain in my life, but as I got into that counseling room, uh, within about three weeks, I began to see all the losses in my life, and I began to realize wow, maybe my life wasn't as perfect as I thought it was. 
And all these things began to be, de- my life basically was deconstructed, blown up in order that I could reconstruct it, not with an illusion, but with reality through the gospel. And as I was being just broken down and being rebuilt, I would go to my friends at seminary who were studying to be pastors, and I would talk to them about what I was dealing with. And these theologically nerdy, brainy guys, a lot of them just looked at me like glazed over look, like, dude, that stinks that you're going through that. But they had no words. They had no other categories to enter into my pain and my brokenness. But when I talked to my friends who were in the counseling program, they were the ones who would just sit there, and without saying anything, they would just cry. And it made me feel uncomfortable. Like, they hurt more than I did for the broken little child that I was talking about in my own life, my past. It was weird to me, but then I began to realize that's why they ask us pastors to go see a counselor because we cannot go and lead other places to the depths if we haven't been there ourselves. If, if you ever want to be a counselor, you want to apply to a counseling school, let me give you the number one hint for you to be accepted into that program. They're not looking for your education. They don't care about your GPA. No one cares about your, you know, they care. It's important. Study well. But counseling programs don't care about your GPA. Here's what they care about. Are they willing to explore the brokenness and the loss within their own lives because if they're not willing to do that for themselves, there's not a smoking chance that they can do that with anybody else. Are you willing to explore the loss in your own life? Because if you can't do that, you're never going to be able to help other people in that journey. So in counseling, the first class you take as a counseling major in seminary is called family systems. Basically, let's unpack your baggage from your family. And within the first day, people are just jacked up. Everybody's crying. Whole class is crying, if not for their own pain, for the pain of other people. And the nickname of this class is called Tears 101. Right? Tears 101. Because that's where you bond, it's where you grieve, and it's where you learn to enter into the suffering of another person. Because when you grieve your own losses, your soul begins to grow, begins to enlarge so that you can really mourn with those who mourn. Do you feel like when people come to you with their brokenness, with their baggage, with their, uh, with their issues, with their sadness, that you don't know how to deal with that? You don't know how to process that? I tell you the ones who will most be able to track with you are the ones who've experienced that pain and loss and been able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with the shepherd who will lead us to the other side. Last week, we started a premarital counseling class, five couples. Last week, it was, there was a lot of laughter. We laughed a lot, particularly at a couple people, but laughing at our own stories. But then uh, there were also a lot of tears, a lot of tears as uh, people were sharing, sharing their stories, uh, sharing about unresolved business, unmet needs, pain, brokenness, unfulfilled expectations, parental stuff, sharing their stories. Um, There's one story, um, one story, and I, I asked if I could share it, and they were in our morning service, and they heard, and they said I did a pretty accurate job explaining it, so I'm going to try again here. But um, this one couple, Joseph Kim and, and Han Bit Oh, uh, 
they met here in Florida, but um, they started dating when they were in California. Very, very uh, friendly, platonic relationship. Um, they just hung out in, in, in groups. Uh, he was a noob out there, and so she introduced her, him to a bunch of friends, and, and they would hang out in, in groups of people. And uh, if you know Joseph, you know he's a very happy-go-lucky guy. He's a fun guy. He's goofy. He's silly. He laughs a lot, you know, things like that. Um, but I forget who exactly liked who first, but um, he really, uh, after a certain point in time of hanging out together, he wanted to pursue a relationship with her. And so he said, hey, will you be my girlfriend? And she said, no. <laughs> so the next day, he asked her again, so will you be my girlfriend today? And she said, no, again. And every day, I think he said for a week, he asked her to be his girlfriend. Uh, and she said, no, every time. And so he finally said, okay, uh, he gave this ultimatum. He said, if you don't become my girlfriend today, <laughs> then we can't, we can't be friends anymore, is what he said. And she said, oh, okay, um, then I guess I'll see you. <laughs> and she left. And then he realized that, oh, snap, that didn't work out very well. <laughs> it didn't work out the way I intended it to. And so he said, okay, never mind about that part. Uh, let's be friends. And then he'd ask her out again, and he asked her out again, ask her out again. And, and finally she said, okay, fine. Not okay, fine, but okay, I'll be, your, I'll be your boyfriend, girlfriend. We'll go out, we'll date. So they started dating. And as they told the story, like, what was it that changed? What changed in her mind that brought her to the point where she said, okay, you know what? I want to be with this man for the rest of my life because they both made it clear. Listen, we're not, I'm not trying to mess around. Hey, I'm not trying to mess around either. We're not trying to mess around, so let's make this thing work. And so they tried. What, what, what made her say, okay, okay, after all these times rejecting him, I'm going to give my heart to this man. I'm going to give my life to this. I'm going to follow him. Well, she said, when... We would hang out. I always saw him as this fun guy, this goofy guy, this silly. And the word she used, he was kind of this wishy-washy guy, whatever that meant. She said, when my, when, my dad, when my dad passed away of cancer, May 2018, I think 2019, I forget when it was. My dad passed away. Um, I saw a completely different side to Joseph. Okay, he was the rock in my life. He was the definition of reliability and stability. That when everything was falling apart, right, he was there for me being the friend that I needed him to be. No longer was he wishy-washy, but in the times when I needed the most, he stepped up and he was a man for me. You know, people say that boys become men when men are needed. Right? When there's a void, when there's a vacuum, this is where boys grow and they become men. And said in that moment, he became a man. And what really got her was how he treated her mother when, she would, when he would see her. Her mother, the widow, who'd lost her husband, he said Joseph treated her with such compassion and gentleness and understanding as if he'd been in those places before, and he spoke into her life in a way that nobody else had. He understood her, and he was there, and the way he treated my mom just really caught my heart. 
And as I think about Joseph, many of you know, nine years ago, he lost his brother on the mission field in Ecuador. And for the past nine years, he's lived with that brokenness, and he's seen his mother day in, day out. Whatever she looks like in public, he sees what she looks like in private. And he sees the pain of a woman who's lost her deepest treasure in life. And in seeing that, his soul began to enlarge. Yeah, you know, you might see him the way you see him, but there's something that begins to happen when men are needed that only those who've been through a period of grieving and loss can really begin to enter in. Right? This is what God does in us through the gift of grieving our losses. Loss is normal in life. But when we grieve those losses, instead of running away from them, God meets us in that place. We have an encounter with him, and he breathes his spirit into our soul, and our souls begin to enlarge so that we can love our neighbor the way that we love ourselves because we've been there, because we know, because we understand, because we face loss, and we've worked through those things. Why does God meet us in those places? Because of every other religion and their leaders, of every other religion and their gods, there's only one worldview where God actually experienced the same kind of loss that you and I did. He didn't stay up in heaven and say, oh, it's a broken world, let's fix it, snap our finger, wave a magic wand, and everything is good. He sent his one and only son into the brokenness to be called a man of sorrows. And on the cross, God the Father understood what it was like to lose somebody who meant everything to him to the point where he had to turn his back on his only begotten son. Why does God meet us in that grief? Because he came into our lives and he sat amidst the grief and he sat amidst the blood and he sat amidst the brokenness and he weeps with us in that place. That our God knows what it is to have lost and he knows what it is to grieve and he knows that at the cross his son was showing us what we deeply needed to know. That this is what it looks like to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And on the cross, as Jesus died, he made it possible for us to move into a relationship with the one who grieves in order that our hearts might be changed so that we could love. In the midst of the darkness of loss that you might be going through right now, the fastest way to run to the light is not to chase it to the west where the sun is setting, but it's to run into the darkness towards the east and to know that as you're running, that from that place, the sun will eventually rise. God meets us there because through death comes our resurrection. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our certainty as we move in uh, this life through grief, through brokenness, so that we might be the kind of people who could love the way that he's called us to love. Let's pray together. What is the loss what are the losses in your life that you have yet to grieve honestly, deeply? What are the places of grief and loss in your life today? How have you dealt with those? Have you grieved those losses in your life? What would it look like for you to begin to tell God that it hurts so much 
See, one of the ways that you know that you've grieved is that the feelings of loss still come, but they don't affect you as deeply as they once did. Yeah, you never get over it. But you learn to sit in the midst of it. What are the losses? How have you grieved those losses? God wants to enlarge your soul in order that you can love him the way that he calls us to love. Can we just spend one minute right now, begin this process of bringing your losses and your grief before the Lord so that you can say, Lord, I, I, I want to encounter you. I want to begin this journey. Let's pray like that for a minute, and I'll uh, lead us in continued prayer as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together for, for a minute or so. of our sin lifting our eyes upwards to the cross and thanking God that our Father in heaven is a God of the cross who gave his only son to die who sheds tears when we weep because he knows what it's like he's there to sustain you in the midst of the brokenness walks with you through the valley of death's shadow there's a shadow it means there's a light he is the light who walks with you. He's with you. Let's confess. Let's thank God for meeting with us. Let's pray that we would see him better as we come to this table of God's mercy and grace. heaven we thank you thank you so much that you loved us in such a way that you entered into a world in which loss this side of Eden is normal you gave your son in order to show that in the new world in the life to come it will once again be abnormal where there is no more tears no more crying no more death
because you loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.